Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen in back of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we'll be, and we'll get there in just a moment. If you're new with us, uh, we have been in a series, uh, and today we're coming to the end of the series called It's Complicated. We've looked at the issues of sex and marriage and divorce, and today we end on this topic of singleness, singleness. I want to get you guys up to speed on what's coming next week. Uh, Next week, we start a new series. I'm really excited about this series. We're calling it Living in the Gray, Living in the Gray, and it's coming from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the Christian life, uh, there are many issues that are clearly black and white, right? Things that we know we shouldn't do and things we ought to do, those things that are definitely right and wrong. Other issues, though, are not so clear. They're kind of fuzzy, so therefore somewhat complicated and oftentimes controversial. And so we're going to look at how we navigate those gray areas of life and how we lovingly can interact with those who have different convictions than we do. We're going to learn how to live in the gray for the glory of God, and I'm looking forward to that. But today, we we turn to the oft-neglected topic of singleness. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've found that in the the church, uh, we rarely talk about singleness. In our efforts to put forth a positive view and a positive vision of marriage and family, uh, we we often uh, leave singles out. And that's certainly not what I want to communicate today. And yet, I'm going to be honest with you. Right out of the gate, I want to tell you that I haven't had a lot of experience being single. All right, I, uh, some of you know this, I think this was in God's humor, um, or maybe he just thought I needed a companion ever since birth, but I was born with a twin brother, all right, so from the womb, right, I have a built-in best friend ever since I was born. We grew up together, lived together with a couple other guys in college, and then finally, the summer after my senior year of college, I got married to my beautiful wife, Jamie. We've been married for the last 21 years. So all that to say, I, I'm not very qualified in some ways to uh, talk about singleness, at least from personal experience, and so I figured this week I needed help to write my sermon. And so I, uh, I had the privilege this past week of meeting with several people in our church who are single, coming from different uh, life experiences and circumstances, some who are younger, who have never been married, uh, some who have been married, since then divorced and now single, and some who are widows in our church who have lost their husbands uh, years ago or just recently. And, and I just sat and listened and asked them questions and just wanted to hear more about uh, some of the blessings of singleness and some of the the challenges. It was really, really helpful for me personally. I learned a lot. It was really helpful. And if I'm being honest, it was a little painful. Realizing that I, I often 
speak out of my own personal experience, and the illustrations I use oftentimes are speaking of family and how I relate as a husband and a father, and sometimes I neglect to think about the singles in our midst and those whom God has called to singleness at this point in your life. So in my desire to learn more, I not only met with a few folks, several folks this week, I also picked up a book, and uh, I really highly recommend this book to you. This is called The Seven Myths About Singleness. The Seven Myths About Singleness, written by a man named Sam Alberry. I highly recommend this book, uh, not just for singles, but for all of us. Uh, He walks through seven myths of singleness in in a very uh, concise, compelling way, and I've learned a lot this past week. Now, all that to say, we're not here to uh, listen to what I have to say about singleness or even from this author. We're here to listen to what God has to say about singleness. And I'm so thankful that he has spoken to us directly in Scripture. He's spoken to singles in whatever situation you find yourself in. And more importantly, he speaks to all of us here as a church family, whether single or married. And so, Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm not going to read uh, this in its entirety. We picked up verse 17 onward through verses 17 through 40, but I'm just going to kind of pull out five points along the way uh, describing what singleness is and what it isn't. And so here's my first main point, my first point of the five. Number one, singleness isn't just for singles. Singleness isn't just for singles, but directly affects All of us. Directly affects all of us here in this room. So I just want to, by way of reminder, uh, share with you that this is a letter. Paul has written 1 Corinthians to a church, an actual church that's meeting in the city of Corinth. This is not a disconnected group of isolated individuals that are reading this on their own. This is a church that's gathered together to hear the reading of the Word of God to them from Paul the Apostle. And so this was a family of believers composed of singles, married, widows, people who are all over the map spiritually. And the the point is that they all needed to hear these words directed toward singles. And so do we. Now, at first glance, it seems like just the opposite as Paul turns to different people in the church and and addresses them directly. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 10, he says, To the unmarried and the widows I say. And then in verse 10, To the married I give this charge. So it seems like he's just pinpointing, Hey, uh, the rest of you can leave for now. I just want to talk to these specific individuals. And yet that's not the case. Here's what he's doing. He's giving instruction to each of these groups, but he wants and expects the entire church to be listening in, to be part of this conversation. We all need to hear the Bible's teaching on singleness. Why? Because singleness affects all of us. We're a family, and it's fitting that we all get to be together in one service today to remind ourselves we are a family. Consequently, we belong to one another because we're going to be together for all of eternity. Now, Jesus made this point clearly in Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him. That's Jesus. And they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, well, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus was redefining family, wasn't he? He was putting even a greater emphasis and priority on his spiritual family. The church is his spiritual family, and this family was to be his main priority as they would be with him for all of eternity. Now, sometimes we think that singleness means no family. But even Jesus, as we know, was single, and he had a spiritual family. And we see throughout the New Testament, we see these metaphors of the church as a family, as the household of God. Ephesians 2, 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so because we are members of the same family, we treat each other like close family. Not distant family, but a close-knit family. So what happens to one of us affects all of us. We're a family, and we're a body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26 to 27, it says, If one member suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is why I need to know what it's like in your situation. And you need to know what it's like for me in mine. We're in this together. We're a family, a close family. That means I have a stake in your spiritual life. You and I, we belong to one another. It says in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for just as each of us has one body with many members, so think about your own physical body. This is a a metaphor, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and notice, and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to one another. So when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you not only belong to Jesus, you belong to a new family. You're connected now to a new body of believers. And this is to be manifest in a local church where you are committed in membership to one another. So I just want to make a little plug here again for our starting point class coming up here in February. Love to teach this class. If you've got questions at all of what it means to belong, because that's what the New Testament tells us. We are to belong to one another, not just to be attending a church, but to belong, to belong to one another, to be committed to one another. I'd love for you to sign up for that class. I care about you and the outcome of your faith. And we ought to care about one another. We're not alone on this journey with God. We're invested in each other. We're walking beside each other because one day we'll be together forever in eternity. So, number one, first point, singleness isn't just for singles, but directly affects all of us. Number two, 
Singleness isn't a superpower. It's, it's not a superpower, but a gift and calling from God. Singleness isn't a superpower, but a gift and calling from God. Look at chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. So usually when we talk about singleness, we think of it in terms of what a person is losing or lacking rather than what a person is receiving and gaining. Singleness seems like a loss rather than a gift. Something you've just got to get through on your way to marriage, on your way to future happiness. And let's just make sure you know I'm not defining singleness the same way our culture defines it. Our culture defines singleness as adultolescence, pretty much. You stay young, you have fun, and you sleep around. Enjoy your singleness. But to be single biblically means that you are both unmarried and celibate. You're committed to sexual abstinence, which is why when we talk about singleness as a gift and there's no sex, the culture laughs at us, right? Because so much of our society is structured around sex. But even as Christians, I've noticed that we can sometimes balk at the idea of singleness as a gift. Why is that? Because I think we have this tendency to refer to singleness as this particular ability that some have to be content alone. And if that's what the gift is, then I certainly don't have that. And in this way, singleness is like a superpower that is rare and unusual, and only super spiritual people like Paul and Jesus can have this. But that's not true. The key to understanding singleness is this word, gift. It's used over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians, and it can be defined in this way. A gift is something freely and graciously given by God for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. I'll say that again. A gift, especially as we see it in 1 Corinthians, is something freely and graciously given by God for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So, so listen, Paul is not speaking of singleness as this special calling reserved for only the spiritually elite. It's not a superpower. It's a gift. And he's saying that as long as you are single, God has given this as a gift to you. As long as you are single, God has given this as a gift to you. And that gift is to be used to bless others and build up others in the body of Christ. In other words, whatever circumstance of life you're in, that's God's gift to you. If you're a single person right now, that's God's gift to you. If you're a married person right now, that is God's gift to you. Now, I want to be clear, I met with a group of ladies who are widows this past week. It's not the loss of your husband that is a gift. That's heart-wrenching. As I spoke with um, not only the widows but others, they told me the toughest part of singleness is on the front end. 
trying to adjust to new life, you begin to slowly, over time, grow closer to the Lord, but it's often very difficult. So he's not saying that the loss of your husband is the gift. It's singleness is the gift. Likewise, I met with a few folks who have been divorced and now single. It's not the heartbreak of divorce that's the gift. It's the gift of singleness itself. So whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, whether you're single or married, take it as God's gift to you, his grace to you. And it's not just a gift. It's also a calling on your life right now. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So God is the one who orders our lives for his purposes and for his glory. And some of us will be single, others of us will be married. And most of us are going to be single again when our spouse dies. And we're to live out our calling as singles for as long as God intends. It is good to remain single. To remain single is what Paul says. He emphasizes this word remain, repeats it four times in this section of Scripture. Notice in verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Jump down to verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Verse 26 again, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And then finally at the end of chapter 7, verses 39 to 40, he's speaking to widows. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And so it is good to remain single, Paul says, but I think some of us have this tendency to think, well, I can't be a whole person until I'm married. And so you, you put on the brakes of your life as you wait for Mr. Wright to come along, Mrs. Wright to come along, and you're just kind of in this holding pattern, just waiting and waiting. And I understand, I mean, when God says remain in the calling you've been given, and if you have the desire to, to be married, what, what do you do with that? So remain where you are, but what if you have desires to be married? What's that look like then? Do, do I wait for the right man and woman to just walk through the door? I mean, what should I do? And so just kind of a parenthesis here when it comes to discerning the will of God. Sometimes we want to short-circuit this process, don't we? We want just a sign you know, from God. Just give me a sign, God. Just send someone into my life with a light from heaven shining down on them so I know that's the one. But God is not in a hurry, even though we seem to be. He wants you to grow in trusting in him, to see that he is sovereign, he's in control, and he cares for you deeply. Paul tells us whatever situation you're in, whether you're single or married, receive it as God's gift to you. Remain in it. Abide in it. Flourish in it. Bloom where you are planted. And use this gift for the building up of the body of Christ, trusting that God has you in this place for his purposes, for his glory. He's not holding something back from you. He's actually freeing you to give your life fully to Christ and to others. And that's point number three. Point number three, 
singleness isn't a hindrance to life and ministry, but frees you to give your life fully to Christ in others. Singleness isn't a hindrance to life and ministry. It frees you to give your life fully to Christ and others. Look with me at verses 32 to 35 of chapter 7. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so sometimes we think that, that singleness is a hindrance to the, to the good life that's awaiting us. As if, if marriage is the goal out there, and singleness seems to be a detour to that ultimate goal. I spoke with one single person this week who was just honest and said this, sometimes it feels like my life won't really get started until I get married. I felt that way. And yet that's unfortunate because it reinforces the idea that even as Christians, we can idolize marriage. That everyone deserves the happily ever after experience that marriage brings. Yeah, some of you are laughing on that one. Hmm? Not so much today. And so, so we, here's what we do. We, we say that the goal in singleness is to become the right person for your future spouse, to become godly now so you can be ready for your wedding day. And furthermore, the, the goal in these years is to make sure you keep yourself pure. So on your wedding day, you'll be pure for your future wife or husband. And I want to say this, all that is true, but it communicates something. It communicates a subtle message that becoming the right person in life and staying pure is more about marriage than it is about Jesus. We put on the purity ring, and then we get married and we take it off. Did purity stop when you got married? We, we've got to remember the truth is that not all godly people get married. You know that, right? Not all godly people get married. In fact, God's best for many will include life without a wife, husband, or children. And that's okay. In fact, it might even be better because the grass isn't always greener in marriage, Paul is saying here. Married, married people, you guys can testify to this. It's often harder, isn't it? Paul writes here in verse 33 that those who marry will have worldly troubles, he says. Earlier in verse 28, he had written that their interests would be divided. In other words, marriage is hard and it is a lot more complicated. I mean, think about this. The potential for heartache and difficulty increases exponentially the more people you have in your family, right? Now, lest you think that Paul is kind of down on marriage, he's not, he's not. He's single himself, but he's not down on marriage. He just knows that life will be a lot more complicated, right? And we know that. I mean, you get married, you, you've got kids, there's more than one person to worry about. More people to consider in making decisions, more stress, more sickness, more suffering, right? More everyday problems that come with being married and having kids. And Paul says in verse 28, I just want to spare you of this. 
I want to free you from these anxieties and difficulties. And so singleness, it brings freedom. It does. It brings freedom. But it's not just freedom from the worldly troubles of marriage. It's also freedom to devote yourself fully to Christ and to others. Verse 34 and 35 Again, in his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, as a single person, in most cases, you've got more time on your hands, right? You've got more time for ministry. You've got more flexibility, You can be involved in several Bible studies, growth groups, serving, sharing the gospel with people in your sphere of influence. And to to, to realize you're single now, listen, you're single now for the sake of the kingdom of God. You have a unique freedom, no matter what your age, that you can be used in great ways to build up the church right now and spread the gospel here in Humboldt and beyond. So listen, I've got a big question for you to think about if you're single today, and here it is. How can I maximize my singleness for the kingdom of God? How can I maximize my singleness for the kingdom of God and to not waste these years? I especially think of you young people. Listen to me in in this room. Dream a dream right now. Do something great. You don't have to wait. Do something great for the glory of God and dream about how can I be used right now. I don't want to waste my life. I've only got one life to live. I don't know when my time is up. None of us have any guaranteed days that are coming down the road. So what are you doing today to live for God's kingdom? And that may start some of you honestly looking in the mirror at yourself spiritually and saying, am I really who I say I am? Am I a follower of Jesus Christ or is it still all about me? I, I have to, when I look at this text and Paul talks about anxiety and the, the anxiousness we can get about worldly things, are you convicted? Think about the things that you're anxious and concerned about. Most of them are worldly passing things in life. Do you lose sleep over someone who is dying in their sins in this community? How anxious do you get about God's kingdom not being known and preached and his love being known all over the globe? Does that keep you up? I have a fear that we are often so anxious about so small of things that we rarely enter into the concern of the kingdom of God Paul says to seek his kingdom here, be concerned about the kingdom here, and don't be so anxious about things that are passing. Give yourself wholly to God and use this gift of singleness for his great glory. That's a prayer of mine for you. What would God want to do with a person who has a heart ready to be used of him in mighty ways? Now, I realize it's easy to say that, but it's hard when it comes to living it. In fact, I think the number one challenge to singleness is loneliness. It's what I heard from nearly all the people I met with this week who are single. Singleness often means loneliness, which leads us to our next point, number four. Singleness isn't easy. 
Singleness isn't easy, but there's a unique intimacy in Christian friendships. Singleness isn't easy, but there's a unique intimacy in Christian friendships. That's point number four. It's, it's not here in the text, but I want to speak to it anyway. One of the singles I spoke with this week said that sometimes it feels like we live in a couple's world. That's true. And sometimes here in the church, I mean, so many of our ministries are geared towards families, something I'm aware of and I'm thinking more about. Consequently, can feel lonely as a single person. Even coming into church on a Sunday morning can feel lonely for many of us here in this room. And we know that God doesn't want us to be alone. You remember in the Garden of Eden when God spoke to Adam and he said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, God was primarily speaking about man's need for a wife, a companion in marriage, and yet I think that when we look at this verse, it also shows humanity's need for relationships, which is why so many single people struggle with loneliness. As human beings, we aren't designed to do life alone. And yet we try to shore up this whole struggle with loneliness through social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And so many have made the observation this is causing our generation to only grow more and more lonely as we rarely talk to people face to face. We're also faced with a culture that tells us that intimacy can only be found in sex. So if you're single and you're celibate, you won't have any intimacy. I want to say that's a lie. That's a lie. God has provided a unique kind of intimacy found in Christian friendships. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says it this way, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is really a high view of friendship. Proverbs talks about friendship over and over again. It's a high view of friendship and one that we need to revive, I think, in the church, where the word friend actually means something. It's, it's a noun again, not a verb, right? I want to friend you. That's a little weird, right? It's kind of friendship that's even closer than family. That's what he's getting at here. Notice the contrast again in, the, in this verse. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. One pastor, his name is Ray Ortland, commented on this verse. He says this, a brother is stuck with you. A brother is obligated to be some kind of safety net for you. That's what family is for. But listen, a friend chooses you. When someone loves you at all times, good and bad, and they don't have to, but they choose to, that person is a friend. And, and I think all of us deep down long to have a friend like that. Even you men. We long to have a friend like this. Do you remember David's friendship with Jonathan? It's incredible. Jonathan dies. David's mourning the loss of his good friend. David's had so many wives, which is a problem in and of itself. But the love that he had with, with Jonathan was unique. And so many commentators want to go, well, this, and the culture tries to say, well, this, is this kind of somehow homophobic stuff going on here with David and Jonathan? And it exposes the reality that we can't have any intimacy even between men without thinking there's something going on. That's a problem. 
We need to be honest and vulnerable as men and love one another and be there for one another and encourage one another like David and Jonathan did. That was an example, and we ought to follow it as well. I was encouraged that several of the single people I spoke with this week have felt loved by our church family, by the friendships they've, they've made here. In fact, one man, he made the comment, it's great to have a group of guys who know me and I can be honest with. Do you have that in your life? One woman made the comment that right away when she came here to Oak Hill, she felt embraced by the women of the church as she joined Bible studies and book club. And yet this is true of not just single people. We all need friends, don't we? I've heard it said that people aren't looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. I think that's really true. Friends who know us completely and love us deeply. Friends who choose to love us at all times, good and bad. To have a friend that is faithful to us forever. Jesus himself said this in John 15, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Think about that for a minute. We gloss over that so easily. This is a son of God, God in the flesh, calling you a friend of his. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Sometimes we forget that Jesus himself lived his entire life on earth as a single man, as a celibate man. And he didn't live as though he was lacking something or missing out on something. Listen, listen to this quote from one author said this, Jesus didn't view his celibacy as a no, no to joy, no to sex, no to intimacy, but rather he viewed it as a life-giving yes, yes to relationships, yes to friends, yes to serving others, and yes to enjoying life to the fullest. Sometimes it's hard to see our singleness in this way, right? We, we see it as a no instead of a, a yes. And, and we still have these unfulfilled desires that we can't seem to shake. And it's here that we need to remember that this world is quickly passing away. Life is short, and that leads us to our last point, and then we'll be done. Number five, singleness and marriage isn't ultimate. Christ is. Singleness and marriage isn't ultimate, Christ is. Look at these strange verses in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. By the way, in Corinth, they were thinking that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And we ought to be thinking the same thing. We ought to be ready. We don't know, but we ought to be ready. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Don't take that out of context, by the way. That's why we don't just read a verse and then, hey, let's pull that out. Make sure we don't apply that one, guys, today. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that the things of this world, including marriage and, and singleness and, and your job and all the present cares of your life, they're not going to last forever, right? They're passing away. Why? Because the appointed time is short. Since Jesus has come, the, the end of the ages has already arrived. We're living in them right now. We're living in the last days. And soon everything we have and see here will all be gone. Everything that is, except Jesus. Only Christ 
is ultimate. And one day, very soon, all these unfulfilled longings of our hearts here on earth are going to be met in one person, Jesus. Jesus. So guys, in the meantime, we need to reorient our lives, reorient our hearts around eternity, not just our present lives, to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus and others who need him, and to realize that there will be loneliness. There will be. There will be emptiness. There will be an ache in all of us for something more, someone more, until we see him face to face. So let me end in this way. It is bitterly cold outside today, is it not? And it reminded me of this verse in Matthew uh, 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is speaking about the last days, and he's saying even those who claim the name of Christ, as lawlessness increases, as sin increases, it's going to get cold. It's going to get dark. People are going to turn away from him and turn away from the love of God. I think about it for us. We're in winter, and we'll be in winter probably for another three months. Isn't that encouraging? But April 1st is coming. Spring will be here before we know it. And in the meantime, while we're shivering in cold and we're oftentimes waking up and it's dark and getting home from work and it's dark, we've got to realize there is a community that is dark and a community that has a love that's growing cold and a community that's, that's lonely and, and needing the love of, of Jesus. Guys, we need to warm our hearts together as we come as singles, as we come as married, as we come as widows, as we come as kids, as we come into this family. This is about warming our hearts with the gospel more and more and more until the joy of spring comes when Christ will return and the long winter of loneliness will finally be over. One more thing before I pray. I didn't know if I was going to share this, but I, I feel like I should. Last night, I, I didn't feel too good about this message. And I was feeling kind of the, the coldness of the love of Christ. Where, where are you? I just, I didn't feel it. And I, uh, I was just reading, and we're reminding of, of Revelation, um, the last words of Jesus in the Bible. Do you remember the last words of Christ? What were his last words before he left? He repeats himself twice. I don't have that up there on the screen. Verse 7, he says in Revelation 22, And behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, he says, Surely I am coming soon. I was like, yes, you are coming. You are coming soon. And that was 2,000 years ago that was written. And he's coming. He is coming soon. Are you ready? See, this loneliness might be the very thing that will lead you to Jesus, some of you out there. And those of us who are Christians, we feel the, the angst and the, the ache in us. We're, we're lonely. Please come again and make things right. Please come again and bring spring because this winter has been way too long. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that we have a Savior, Jesus, who has come to us and understands our loneliness, understands 
the journey that we're on, whether we're single or married or widowed or whatever we are today in this room, this is a desire in all of us that one day would be fulfilled in Christ, that we would be free to live forever without any more tears, without any more pain, no more sin in relationships, but complete harmony and beauty with you, Jesus, and with this family that you are ushering in. And we pray here in this room today that all of us might be a part of that. Lord, I pray that you would grant the gift of belief in this room today to trust in you, Jesus, maybe for the first time. And for those of us who are following you when it's cold and dark, I pray that our hearts would be warmed again by the gospel, by this church, as we look forward to the spring that will be here very soon. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.